Hello and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. In December of 2019, we did a service called Paradox Unscripted with real questions from the congregation and we have some questions left over. So today is the continuation of those questions in Paradox Unscripted. I'm very excited to welcome Adam to the Paradox Podcasting Headquarters. Adam, we're glad that you're here. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Glad to be here. So a couple services ago, we did Paradox Unscripted, in which I answered questions that I had not heard before and did my best to talk about them and how uh, those questions intersect with spirituality. There were more questions than we had time for. So today, Adam will be asking questions that were written by people who attended Paradox in December. Um, and we're going to try to answer all of them. I think there's 14 questions left. Is that right, Adam? Yeah, that looks about right. Great. Let's start with the first question. Okay. First question. Um, as you know, just for some context, Paradox is an LGBTQIA affirming church. So the question is, how can we encourage more open-heartedness for the LGBTQ community when faced with someone who doesn't accept them? I think the best answer to that is to tell stories. Stories are by far the most powerful method for people to change. Um, and you may ask where I've got that idea from, and it's from the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus told stories more than he told rules for the way people should behave. And I will tell you from my personal story and my personal journey, um, there's a lot of theological discussion about LGBT persons, and I don't think that's particularly helpful. I think a much more helpful conversation is to allow uh, people to tell their stories and where they've come from. Some of the most moving moments of my life have come from people who've been willing to share what it's like to face discrimination at the hands of church um, because of their gender identity or sexual orientation. And so what Paradox can do uh, is get people to tell their stories, amplify those stories, be part of those stories, celebrate those stories, and recognize uh, where Jesus is in the midst of all of those stories. So that's what I would say. Awesome. Kind of a follow-up to that question. Um, another question that was submitted says, how did you gain such confidence that the Bible does not speak, of, uh, speak against same-sex marriage? That's a great question. I studied it pretty extensively. Um, when you look at the Bible closely, you have to look at what it does and what it doesn't endorse. And one thing it overwhelmingly endorses is slavery. And slavery is something that we can all agree is a sin. But when you look closely at Leviticus, specifically chapter 25, we read about how God uh, tells the Israelites uh, direct from God's mouth that as long as you own slaves that are not your own people, then it's okay to own slaves which I actually would disagree with God at that point in Leviticus. And you may say, where do you get the grounds to disagree with God? Well, I would say that I get that from the Bible as well. Moses disagreed with God twice and won both arguments, which is rather strange. Um, but really, when you look at it that way, the Bible all of a sudden starts to get into different categories as to what it is. Because this idea that it's a moral code that was meant to exist for all time simply doesn't hold up when you read it. And yet, that is what most Christians in America will tell you the Bible is. Uh, I have found personally that my definition of the Bible um, has helped me, uh, which is the Bible is 100% accurate in a way a people group perceived God over multiple generations. 
And that's the Bible's never failed me in that, uh, with that definition. You may have a different definition and that's fine. But when people say, well, the Bible clearly says that homosexuality or same sex marriage is a sin, I would say, stop. Where does the Bible say that? And what does it actually say? And when you look closely at what those verses each say, um, they all say pretty different things, but they all condemn what our society would ultimately categorize as either pedophilia or rape. So those are kind of the things that make me uh, confident in the ability to say that Bible does not condemn same-sex marriage. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Moving to the realm of science, this question says, some believe in human evolution and some are insulted at the idea. Where do you, meaning the pastors, stand in that controversy? Oh, do you get to join in on an answer on this one, Adam? I guess so. (laughs) I'll let you go first, though. (laughs) So to answer this question, I'm going to use some elementary astrophysics. Before we get there, though, we have to understand that most Christians that think that evolution is bad or wrong will tell you that the universe is 6,000 years old. This is based on some math that they find in the Bible. Um, But that's the general premise that people ask you to believe in if you don't believe in evolution. So the astrophysics I want to talk about is the fact that we have to talk about how big space is. Specifically, we are on a space rock hurtling through space that is 93 million miles away from the sun. Now, it takes light some time to travel from the sun across 93 million miles and land on our Earth. And that time is about eight minutes. So what that means is that all of the light that we experience from the sun is eight minutes old. In fact, if the sun were extinguished right now, we wouldn't know about it for eight minutes because space is that big. Now, this applies to all of space in the fact that when we look up at the stars, we are looking at starlight that is very old. Specifically, when we look at a star that is 1,000 light years away, the light that is landing on our retina is 1,000 years old, and it's traveled all the way across the galaxy to arrive here on Earth. So we see stars that are 1,000 and 2,000 and 3,000 light years away. And if we assume that the universe is just 6,000 years old, then it seems to be reasonable that we couldn't see any stars that were more than 6,000 light years away. There's just a problem with that. And the problem is the fact that the Milky Way, our resident galaxy, is 120,000 light years in diameter. So what that means is that the universe is at least 120,000 years old, but it doesn't stop there. You and I can walk outside at night, and with the naked eye, we can see our nearest galaxy neighbor, Andromeda. And Andromeda is about 2.4 million light years away. So all of the light that we see is from 2.4 million years ago. Not only that, but these two galaxies are two of two trillion galaxies in the known universe. And some of these galaxies are billions of light years away, which suggests that the universe is billions of years old. So how is it possible that the universe is only 6,000 years old when we can see galaxies that are billions of light years away? Now, I've heard Christian fundamentalist answers to this question, and they say, well, God created the stars to be old. And the way that God created this is kind of a hack or a workaround to not comply with the laws of astrophysics, to which I would then ask, what does that say about God? 
We know infinitely more about space and light and how big the universe is than the people that wrote the Bible. So the idea that there's still a controversy about how old the earth is from the Bible to science is really a misnomer of what it actually is saying. So when people ask me, what do I actually believe? The answer is, well, existence and time is very old for our human perception and the galaxy is the galaxy and the universe are very, very big. Adam, what do you think about this? Yeah, so I really appreciate the science angle. I think maybe the only thing I would add is um, from a biblical angle, the question mentioned that some people are insulted at the idea of human evolution. I think there's this misunderstanding or this misnomer sometimes that uh, Christians who believe in human evolution don't take Genesis 1 specifically very seriously or they do damage to it by believing in human evolution. Um, the, the problem with this is that Genesis 1 and 2 and the entire book of Genesis rather um, is good at a lot of different things. It's, it's good at being a critique um, towards other cultures, specifically Genesis 1 is great at being a critique for other creation myths. Um, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 are very good at talking about or explaining the world to the cultures of the day and why the world is the way that it is. Um, something that Genesis as a book and especially Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 are not meant to be are a literal commentary on uh, how humans developed or a literal interpretation of how we're supposed to understand the world because the people that wrote Genesis were not living in 2019 or in 2020, I guess we're in now, um, with all of the science, technology, and understandings of the world that we have. So the books are very much meant to explain the world as they understood it in their time. Um, and so when it comes to the idea of um, being insulted at the concept of human evolution, um, I would just add that uh, Genesis is, is much more a book that's about meaning rather than about science, and that uh, that is kind of uh, why we have different viewpoints when it comes to Christianity on, on human evolution. But what's crazy to me is the fact that if the Bible was written today, I don't know if the author of Genesis would have changed the first opening words which is in the beginning God created. Yeah. Those are timeless words. Absolutely. And Christians love to come in and slapdash on in the beginning, which was 6,000 years ago, God created, which the Bible definitely doesn't say. So I think there's a timeless element to Genesis that we often shortchange by trying to get it to fit into our boxes of convenience. Yeah. Great. Okay, uh, moving from a lengthier and longer response to maybe a shorter question at least, this one says, why is Jesus God? <laughs> that's a hard question to answer because anytime you try to answer why God did this or that, that's really difficult to try and um, try, to, try to tell you what God thinks because I don't know. That being said, I think that a better question is to ask um, which human being isn't God? Because while we talk about how Jesus is fully human and fully divine, uh, it's important for us to acknowledge that the Bible tells us that uh, we're all created in the image of the divine. And so if somebody says, well, I value Jesus above all others, I'm not sure that's the work of what Jesus came to do. Instead, I think that Jesus was much more about calling what the divine was in other human beings. And also Jesus affirmed his own humanity. Um, Jesus, while other people called him the son of God, more often preferred the title son of man. 
and emphasized his humanity over his divinity. Um, and the fact is like the very idea of our existence is something that I would say is wrapped up entirely in our, uh, just this intersection of what it means to be alive within our humanity in a very, you know, bodily way, as well as something that's more than that, the spirit, which is the intersection of the humanity, the, div the divine. Awesome. This is more of a personal question. The response says, what was one teaching or verse that helped you, Craig, through the transition between your previous church to this beautiful safe haven we now call Paradox? Uh, that's very kind of you to call it a beautiful safe haven, whoever asked this question. Uh, we, we also have some issues too, <laughs> and we're a, we're a church made up of imperfect people. Um, but yeah, we're work, you know, we're working toward making it a safe haven and stuff. And I appreciate if that's the perception that you have of it. And if you've experienced that for yourself, um, I'm going to answer both of those for teaching and verse. Cause I think that there's two different things that are helpful there. The first one is a teaching, uh, the teaching that I, I talked about at my very last sermon at my previous job was, uh, by a German philosopher named Helmut Tillichy. And he said that anyone who speaks to this hour's need is flirting with the edge of heresy. And I think that that's very helpful to me because if you ever want to speak to what is actually going on and actually going to matter, it will be divisive in its nature because people hold stakes in different things. And so that teaching, which I think he wrote about a hundred years ago, somewhere, somewhere in there, he, uh, that really helped me because it reminded me that, um, I was doing my best to speak to this hour's need. And when people called it heresy, that was something that was not new. As far as a verse that helped me, uh, what few people understand the transition out of my previous job is that I felt a real betrayal by the Bible. Uh, we, I did my best to teach the Bible for what it was. And I was told that if I taught the Bible that I would be accepted. <laughs> and the fact is I tried that and I wasn't. So uh, let's just say the Bible didn't really feel like my friend through that transition. Um, what was much more helpful was a Coldplay song, which I know it's really surprising when a white guy likes Coldplay, but here we are. Um, uh, the, there's a song Up and Up that just came off, off their new album called uh, Head Full of Dreams. And there was this last line in there where Chris Martin sings like, um, despite the pain and the things that you face, don't ever give up, don't ever give up. And, uh, that line really stuck with me is like, just don't give up. And I saw him, I saw Coldplay in concert, I think uh, about a year after Paradox started and they sang that song. I remember I just started crying and I just responded to him and I said, I didn't give up Chris. I didn't. So, uh, it's not a Bible verse. I really believe in modern inspiration as well. Um, the Bible, if you didn't know, I still really think highly of, um, I did go through a mini betrayal of it. Uh, it's a bigger betrayal than that, but yeah, I didn't really have a verse that helped me through it, if that's what you're asking. So, all right. Thanks. I didn't know that story. That's a really great story. Thank you. Um, this question says, how do you describe the devil and evil in 2019, even though now it's 2020, I assume both apply. And do you still struggle with accepting the devil's existence? Oh, I don't struggle with it. I don't believe in the devil. Um, <laughs> like that. Um, now, of course, a lot of people are going to ask about the dualistic passages of scripture and all that stuff. I get it. I, I get it, right? Uh, we did a sermon earlier this year where I talked about how the devil was actually very progressive theology uh, in the idea that there was this, this theology before the book of Job 
that if you suffered, it's because you deserved it, because God saw that you were wicked and was punishing you. So the devil was actually a way to, for them to explain um, why the innocent suffer. And from Job forward, Job is really about the fact that the innocent suffer, and there's sometimes that you experience pain that isn't there. Uh, Job forward is like this mark of like when the devil kind of bursts onto the scene of the Bible. Um, and there's obviously passages about the devil in the gospel and in the New Testament. I hear all of that. I personally haven't found the devil to be helpful. I, if you're talking about salvation, I can't imagine that I miss out on salvation because uh, God says I didn't believe in the devil enough. That seems very weird to me. <laughs> um, but for me, what I found to be much more helpful than the devil is this idea of non-dual awareness. And non-dual awareness is basically the idea that everything is connected. So we suffer because we love and you can't have one without the other. I've taught about that at length and it's really difficult to get, uh, to get your head around. It took me several years of studying it to get there, but I highly recommend the book, The Naked Now by Richard Rohr. It describes non-dual awareness better than anything else. And it explains why evil is real, where evil comes from, and how it fits within a Christian paradigm. But if you want to know more about that, I'm happy to talk to you about it, or I'd recommend that book because that's the thing that's been the most helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Can, is it cool if I add something yeah, to yeah, that real quick? Go ahead. Um, I don't, it's been a while since I, w I was teaching on this, but um, either devil or Satan, the word is not used at all in the Old Testament. What's used in Job? It's either devil or Satan. Oh. I'm saying one of them, either devil or Satan is not used. I can't remember which one. It's not used at oh, all I in get the Old Testament. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I sorry. Not both. Yeah, yeah, my I bad, my you. bad. I got you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of, uh, you see, I can't, and I can't remember which one. I want to say it's... I'm pretty sure Satan is in the New Testament. That's it. Okay, that's what I, that's what I was thinking yeah. too. And I, you kind of see this emergence of that word kind of come up in the New Testament. I believe Lucifer is in the Old Testament too, because mm. that's a Babylonian name. Right, right. Um, and so once the Israelites went into exile is when they adopted the teaching or the idea of Lucifer and it translate as translates as shining, shiny one. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was basically just talked about like what temptation was. Right. Um, so that's, that's some thoughts on the devil. Nice. So a few questions now on the nature of the Bible. First one with so many inaccuracies in the Bible, would we be better studying new thought and philosophical writers instead? Maybe. <laughs> um, the reason I would say no to that is I haven't found a book that's better at starting discussions than the Bible. And when somebody says that we shouldn't study the Bible because there's inaccuracies, I would say that you have a different definition of what the Bible is than I do. Um, I actually love, love the contradictions and the inaccuracies. Um, it actually makes it a much more interesting book. And while people have pointed to other books that could be more helpful, I can't, I, in my life experience, I haven't found a better book in all of literature than the Bible for starting discussions and talking about what matters today. Awesome. Okay, continuing on, Jesus had a radical message. The Bible didn't really exist until 1500 due to the print, printing, printing press. Do you think Christians have used the Bible to tone down, modify, or even deny the things Christ said? I mean, the answer is yes about that. Uh, the idea that the Bible didn't exist until 1500 is a bit flawed. It, access to it was restricted. 
but the Bible was really put together sometime around the third, fourth, or fifth century CE. Um, Christians have, I mean, I can think of 112 different examples right now, uh, put words into the mouth of Jesus, and somebody could accuse me of doing the same thing, and I just hope that I'd at least be honest about it. Uh, we try our best to show where things come from in paradox. And if you consider yourself a student of the word, I would encourage you to be able to cite your source and to understand where things come from. Um, so much of what is handed through the tradition is the idea that Jesus said all of these things, and that simply isn't the case. There are only four books that document the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The rest are, uh, very few of those books are about what Jesus said outside of that. Um, and so if you feel like Jesus said something or Jesus stood for something, become familiar with that story, that passage, that verse where he says that, and try your best to understand the context behind that. Because the more educated we are about the Bible, the better it is for this current day and age uh, in the way that we relate to the world and to each other and within the church. I really believe that biblical illiteracy is killing the church, and I think that the best thing that you and I can do to fix that is to actually study the Bible and understand where things come from. Do the Ten Commandments still apply with the new two commandments that Jesus gave us in the Gospels? That's an excellent question. The one thing that that question leaves out, though, is the fact that Jesus said something after giving those two commandments. And most people forget that part or skip over it, and it's the key to understand what he's saying. And the two commandments that Jesus says when he's asked about what the greatest commandment is, the two greatest commandments according to Jesus are to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And what he says after that is key when he says, all of the law and the prophets can be summed up in these two. So it's almost like Jesus is saying to the people that are listening that, hey, I can save you a lot of time on Bible study. I can save you a lot of time on prayer. I can save you a lot of time on all of those things because it's all pointing to you becoming a greater person in love. And so if you find that the Bible leads you to love others and to love God more, great, then keep studying the Bible. But if we take Jesus seriously, if he says, hey, he's almost like he's saying um, indirectly, if the Bible leads you away from loving people, if it makes you angrier toward other people, then leave the Bible behind because everything is pointing toward you becoming a greater person in love. Awesome. Last one from the nature of the Bible type questions. How do we balance Levitical law in our lives? It seems super outdated, but very specific. For instance, it says that if a man lies with another man as a woman, they shall be put to death. Of course, that's so awful, but how do we counter those statements? As we said earlier, Leviticus endorses slavery, so at that point, it should be immediately placed under suspicion. Um, Leviticus is also hard because the whole book is about God speaking to Moses, so you're dealing directly with the words of God. That being said, whoever wrote this question, I doubt you keep Leviticus. Um, I haven't met anybody uh, in this country that uh, strives to keep all of the Levitical laws. I have been to Israel, and I have seen people who attempt to keep all of Leviticus. And if they are asking the question, then I would answer this question very differently. <laughs> of course, they would probably teach me a lot about Leviticus that I don't understand. But... Um, 
whoever wrote this question, I think it's a great question to ask. I would just encourage you to read Leviticus and to mark all the things that you don't do or you don't keep uh, before you go any further, because it's important for us to acknowledge that none of us keep Leviticus. Now, this, of course, raises the question, what is the authority of Leviticus today? To which I would say, mm, it's not much. Because if there's anything in Leviticus that's helpful, it should be what Jesus talked about in the previous question, which is this idea of like all of the commandments are to lead you toward love of others and of God. And if laws in Leviticus help you do that, great. If they don't, get rid of them. And so when it says that we should stone or kill homosexuals, I believe Jesus would come in and say, that doesn't help you to love. Let's leave that law behind. Awesome. Okay. Next question. What is the intersection between God punishing the wicked and God simply allowing the natural consequences of being separated in parentheses sin from him? With each passing year, I believe that God punishes the wicked less and less. Now I believe there's justice and I don't necessarily know what justice looks like in the case of all sins, but I have this sense that God uh, is much more about balancing justice and forgiveness than God is about punishment. There are several stories within the four gospels about Jesus, about how people are suffering because of their sins and because God is angry at them. And the thing that Jesus does systematically through all of these stories from all of these different perspectives is that he refutes the idea that God is punishing them and they are getting what they deserve. Jesus affirms that the innocent also suffer. And at the same time, Jesus points out that the most holy notion that any of us can share is to suffer alongside those who are hurting. And so Jesus, as the son of God and as fully human, suffers alongside those who are hurting and lives in solidarity with them, which is where I believe God is fully found. We've spoken in the past on living a life guided by love instead of directly following the Bible literally. How can Paradox continue to spread this message of Christianity? I think the answer is twofold to that question. The first answer is by living it, by showing people that the most important thing to you, the thing that prioritizes over everything else is your ability to love another. The second thing is we have to be able to tell people that it's okay to give hierarchy to the rules and the writings of the Bible. For instance, Ezra and Nehemiah are two very racist people who ultimately introduced a mixed marriage ban and cast foreign women and children of mixed ethnicities out of Jerusalem. Let's just say I'm not turning to those pages when I'm looking for moral guidance, right? Uh, however, the life and teachings of Jesus Christ in the gospel, I say, I would turn to often for moral guidance. And what I've done there is I've established a hierarchy uh, that I trust parts of scripture more than others. Now, if this sounds daunting to you, I will tell you that it is because it takes study, it takes discussion, it takes time. But I would say if a church is really doing the work that it is, it's helping people through uh, that whole work of scripture and helping them to establish those authorities appropriately. So ultimately, I would say that it's you giving yourself permission to try and prioritize different parts of the Bible and to give hierarchy to those things, which is what I believe that Jesus did throughout the four Gospels. That was a great answer, and I think that's super important. 
How do you draw the line between self-care that's healthy and self-indulgence that's frowned upon in the Bible? Um, I think that it's funny. I, I actually heard this in a commercial and they said it better than anyone else I've heard. And I said, <laughs> why is this in a commercial trying to sell me a car? It was an accurate commercial. And they said that life is equal parts responsibility and pleasure. And I'm like, wow, that's so profound. I didn't buy an Acura. <laughs> and I hope I, you don't need to buy an Acura to get that. But I feel like that's absolutely true. There is so much to life that is about balancing. And I think that we want balancing to be a very easy thing, but it's just not. I would say that one of the hardest things to balance is something I referenced earlier, which is justice and forgiveness. Uh, there's no way I can give a nice and neat answer of how to balance those things across the spectrum for all the injustices in the world. That's really difficult to do. But the reason that we come together on a Saturday morning and the reason that we're part of a church body together is because we find these discussions to be helpful and interesting. And then we go out and we try to change the world for the better. This is what we call kingdom life. And this is ultimately what we are called to be as participants in kingdom life. And when we talk about kingdom life, we're talking about the kingdom of God. And I think that these are discussions that are worth having, but it's really hard to narrow down balances um, for polar opposites and be able to say those things. Those are conversations that usually happen on a more personal level. So as far as your question about how do you balance selfishness and selflessness, it, it takes time. It takes practice. It takes you being willing to say, I'm sorry. It takes times that you're willing to say, no, I need this for me. And realizing when you've gone too far and when you haven't gone far enough. And I have found personally that that is what makes life worth living is trying to figure out what those balances are. Okay, just a couple more. This one says, when there is limited or no historical collaboration with biblical stories, how does one continue to believe? I think that comes back to the definition of the Bible and what it means. And if you're looking for the Bible to be a perfect history book, uh, or a perfect archaeological record in literary form, I will tell you I have been disappointed with that definition. So I think it's important if you consider yourself to be a person of the word to define what the Bible is, and then you'll be able to answer those questions. Um, and, you know, you may have to change that definition over time as you read it, and that's fine. I've changed my definition of the Bible several times. I've stuck with this one for a couple of years. I'd love to tell you it will stay with me to the end of time. I don't know if that's true. So... Uh, yeah, define what the Bible is and then read the Bible. And if it challenges your definition, then change your definition. Our last question. How do I believe that God forgives me when I can't forgive myself? I don't think that you can ever believe that God forgives you if you can't forgive yourself. I don't know a way around that. Um, I think that Richard Rohr talks about the three stages to love, and this has been very helpful to me personally. The, the first stage of love that everyone has to learn is love for self. If you cannot learn to love yourself, it is impossible for you to love another human being. And so when I stand up at Paradox and I talk about the importance of loving other human beings, I'm almost assuming that you already love yourself. Um, 
Now, obviously not everybody loves themselves that comes to paradox for the first time. So I have to try and qualify that to the best of my abilities, but you can't move to true love for another human being unless you first love yourself. Um, once you can love yourself, you can move to loving others and loving people within your tribe. And then after you can love a tribe is when you can move to the third stage of love, which is love for people outside of your tribe. Um, that sometimes can be very easy in the third stage, but it can also be very difficult when you're talking about enemies and people who do not like the tribe that you're in, or when your tribe discourages you from loving those people. This is why I believe that Jesus told his disciples um, in the gospel of Luke that people will know that you're following Jesus based on how you treat your enemies. That is your ultimate testimony. It's the highest stage and the deepest form of love. And I think that's reflected in those three stages of love. So if you are wondering why or how can you believe that God can forgive you when you can't forgive yourself, I would say it's probably going to be impossible unless you can learn to forgive yourself first, to learn to love yourself, to learn to accept your own humanity and that you will make mistakes, and then to find that love is ultimately about loving the imperfect, which is ourself. Mm. And while you may have thought that was the last question, we actually have a bonus question. Because when I did Unscripted, I was asked the question, how did each of our pastors feel a call to ministry? Now, I answered that question for myself on December 28th, but Adam is here in studio. And so, Adam, I will ask you for the last question of this episode. How did you feel the call to ministry? So this is actually a question I've thought about a lot. And the best way that I've found to explain the answer to people is by telling a quick story first from the book of John chapter nine, because in that chapter, Jesus heals a man who is born blind. He allows him to see through a miracle. And what happens after that story is that the religious leaders have a lengthy debate and discussion with the blind man about Jesus and whether this man who healed the blind man is from God because he did such a good and powerful act or if he's from Satan because he's disobeying the law. And they go on a lengthy discussion and a lengthy deba debate and they kind of ask the blind man what he thinks about Jesus, whether the blind man thinks he's from God or whether he's from Satan. And the blind man's response to this question is simply this. I don't know, but this I do know. I was blind, but now I see. So when I was in high school, my senior year, I remember I was deciding what I was going to study in college and what my future would hold and what career I would choose. And I remember there was one specific night where I felt like God was literally and audibly talking to me and telling me and calling me to be a pastor. So at the time, if you would ask me when I was 17 years old, how did I feel the call to ministry? I would say, well, God literally and audibly called me. Well, I'm not 17 anymore. I'm about 10 years older at about 26 years old, and things have changed in my worldviews and how I see God and specifically how I view God's work and how God works in our lives and how God speaks to us. And the things that I believed back then are not exactly the same as I believe now. So my answer is a little bit different. Um, what I have seen is that working in pastoral ministry, um, I've gotten the opportunity to work with some amazing people from my first job in Northern California to my current job here in Redlands, California. Um, and I've seen the kingdom of God just manifested so clearly and so visibly in my life um, as I've gone through those years and just seen God working in ways that were both mysterious, confusing, and awesome all at the same time. 
Um, and so when we come back to this question, how did I feel the call of ministry today, or how do I continue to feel the call of ministry today? Um, my answer is very similar to the blind man in John 9, um, that I don't really know, but I was blind and now I see. In other words, I'm not sure whether God called me or whether God continues to call me or whether I'm supposed to be a pastor or whether I'm the man I'm supposed to be or will I, will I continue to grow and will I continue uh, to be who I am in this life. Um, but I just do know the powerful work that I've seen and the people that I've worked with and how the kingdom has been manifested and I just hold on to that every day. Fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah. Hey, Adam, thanks for asking the questions. Thanks for participating in the discussion. Um, we are studying the book of John for the next four months, um, and we hope that you can join us at Paradox, and we hope that in the meantime that you may see and embrace Jesus Christ in all of them.